My grandfather grew up on a chicken farm outside of Poland. He passed away a few years ago at the age of 82. A few days before his passing on, due to an aggressive form of stomach cancer, he sat me down next to him in his old rocking chair and said in his familiar Polish accent, After I took the boat to New York, I promised to leave this story behind. He didn't look up as he spoke to me, simply staring into his cup of black coffee. It's been 70 years, and I must tell someone before I meet God. I was in a small, quaint, empty town, which despite the Nazi occupation, still functioned. We lived in this two-bedroom farmhouse, my father, mother, and my brothers, Michael and Igor. I'm sorry you never got to meet any of them. Anyway, Michael and Igor were twins, identical twins actually and we had heard rumors of the Nazi fascination with identical twins. This forced us, and we already lived in a secluded part of the countryside in the last occupied house in the town, to be even more reserved. In order to not go into the occupied towns, we basically ate only chicken and eggs for every meal, and whatever mama could gather from the garden. It was lonely, but we survived. The only two things, which were really hard on me were the fact that I had to sleep in the basement due to Michael and Igor being toddlers. They required my father and mother's attention. The basement was cold, with only a small window and moonlight was the only light I got. Because of this, I always delayed going down there until I was absolutely exhausted, so I wouldn't have to lie there awake. On the nights that I couldn't manage to sleep, I would look out of the window which gave me a small view of the garden and the large abandoned water well. This was my daily activity throughout those lonely war-torn nights. In general, it was boring and uneventful, but occasionally I would catch a glimpse of a family, or even just a man or two lovers sneaking their way through our garden up to the front door. They always looked rushed and frightened, and sometimes wore tattered uniforms. What would follow were Horrible sounds of banging on the door to whoever lived here to open up, followed by an argument between my father and mother over whether we should let them in, who moved in the chair to adjust himself. You see, son, we didn't know it, well, I at least didn't, that we lived fairly close to the Auschwitz concentration camp, and those people were escapees. Well, did your father let them in? I asked impatiently. No, he said. It would have been a death sentence for them as well as for us. The Nazis didn't like Poles, but they tolerated us, and it was easier to hide Michael or Igor than an entire family. My father did what he had to do in order to keep his family alive. As the war went on, less and less people began showing up in the middle of the night. Only our chicken and vegetables began to disappear. Losing our only supply of food would not have been possible. And at this point, my father knew it was probably the scapees, so he built a fence around our property. Despite this, the chickens continued to disappear. They weren't killed. They were simply gone. Just vanished from their cages and pens. One night, I decided to stay up myself in order to see if I could find out the answer. I battled my tiredness until the wee hours of the morning. And despite the poor lightning and rain, I caught a glimpse of what seemed to be a human figure 
run across the garden. I rushed upstairs to tell my father and he ran outside with a knife, the best home defense weapon we could afford, but we found nothing. No one. The next day we did find something though. Footprints. Leading from the chicken cages to the water well. They were made in the wet mud from the rain. And they were of bare feet, no shoes, no socks, just feet. My father had mercy on the man who was trying to find refuge and left him a note indicating that he had two days to leave and then he would begin to seal the well. I waited impatiently for my grandfather to tell me the fate of the man. The following night I conjured up the idea to take a blanket down the well to the man since winter was creeping in. I waited until my parents were asleep and I snuck outside. Hands and feet clinging to the pegs which were attached to stones. As I was approaching the bottom, I smelled something absolutely horrific. And I pulled my father's flashlight from my pocket and tried to shine it on the man. Coming to realization of just how large this well was, since it used to supply water for the entire town and its families. Families which no longer remain. But I found no man, only a hole. A hole in the stone where the wall of the well had collapsed, opening up to some of some type of crevice. Only two meters wide and three meters deep and tall, inside sat not a man. Inside was a family with only a skeleton-like creature as the only survivor. The light reflected off of his sunken eyes and grayish skin, face covered in blood with chicken carcasses scattered around. A pile of decomposing chickens next to a woman, a son and a daughter, the children who must have been barely five years old. And they seemed to have been dead for weeks. The man, if he even could be called that, just stared at the light, and I stared back, incapable of breaking his stare. I did not feel threatened by him, for he lacked any sense of aggression. He simply sat there, crouched over without a sound next to the putrefying body of his loved ones and chickens he could have only been using as his source of water as their meat was not eaten. He was empty, devoid of whatever in us makes us human. He should have realized his family was dead long ago, but he was still bringing food for their corpses. He couldn't accept it. He did finally turn his head though when I shined the light back onto the corpses of his daughter. He stared at her and sat down closer to her and continued to stare. You can leave now. I'll open the gate so you can escape. My father will seal the well in the morning, I said to him. Please leave now. My young voice and advice didn't seem to have any effect on him. At this moment, I decided it would be better for me to just climb back up the well and leave. Hopefully the man would follow and escape. As I began my climb, I shined the light on him one final time. What did you see, Grandpa? I shuddered. A tear fell from his eye. He had become a man once again. He broke free from the delusion only when he saw the body of his dead daughter, which had been hidden by the darkness. He realized he had been bringing food, not to his family, but to corpses. That night it rained again. 
but I found no footprints leaving the well in the morning when my father sealed it. It's been a week since the program started. A program that I thought would be the easiest way to make 50 grand within a week, but things turned bad on the third day of a project called The Second Coming. 18 people were involved in the project. Eight of us were observers. I was one of the observers and our role was simple. We were gathered together in one room where we were to watch dozens of monitors that displayed everything going on in a makeshift town one created for the program. If there was anything noteworthy going on, we would all write a little note about it. At the end of the day, we would read our notes out loud. It's funny how different our perspective of every event was. Nine of the people were placed in the town as residents. Their role was simple as well. All they had to do was live like they normally do. Food, water, shelter, and entertainment was provided. The first couple of days, I was pretty jealous. Being an observer was downright boring most of the time. It seemed at the time that I had drawn the short end of the stick. Last but certainly not least, we had our Jesus. His role was not simple. He was the only one that had a direct line of communication with the people running the project, and they would let him know when it was time for him to create another miracle. The person they picked to take on the Jesus role was a little guy, a bit shorter than average with a body structure that matched that of a single chopstick. He had a squeaky voice and also looked to be dirty, even after bathing. His name was Chad and his appearance was far from impressive. The residents did not know about this fake Jesus guy. They were even given a completely different name for the program. For all they knew, this whole thing could have been one giant sleep study, or something of the like. It's safe to say they weren't prepared for the coming days. The first three days were completely normal. The residents got to know each other. That night, a couple of them even paired up and went to sleep together. It doesn't take a genius to know what they were doing. The second and third days were so boring that I found myself dozing off half the time, along with most of the other observers. The fourth day started off normal enough, but around three in the afternoon, Chad performed his first miracle. It wasn't really anything marvelous, just a simple party trick that shouldn't have stunned a bunch of adults on the first try. But I suppose the people chosen to be residents in this experiment weren't the sharpest group of people. They were all eating lunch when a woman started waving her arms frantically. Chad was face down in the middle of the swimming pool. When the other residents ran over, Chad stood up and walked on the surface of the water towards everyone. A couple of them fell on their knees while the others just stood in shock. I don't really know how to describe the events of the next four days any differently than how I recorded them in my notes. I'll just copy them down here. Day 4. Chad was walking with one of the male residents. Everything seemed fine until the residents suddenly collapsed. It didn't take long for the others to run over to them. Chad stared at the ground for a moment before kneeling down and touching the man on the forehead. Almost immediately, the guy jumped to his feet, good as new. Honestly, I don't know how he did it. This is definitely a lot harder of a miracle to pull off than the one he performed the previous day. Day 5. 
We notice a female resident standing atop of a tall building. Neither me nor the other observers saw how she got up there. We watched in horror as she launched herself off of the building. Down below, a pool of blood oozed around her lifeless body as Chad and the other residents slowly walked over to the gory scene. Chad knelt down next to her and whispered a couple of words into her ear. She opened her eyes and with a dazed look on her face, sat up and looked around at the other residents. The observers and I were in utter disbelief. We have absolutely no idea how we could have possibly done that. Day 6. All of the residents gathered together early in the morning. They were talking amongst each other. Chad, however, was nowhere to be seen. They all looked to be frightened. When Chad finally showed up, a couple of the residents grabbed him, while the rest tied him up so that he couldn't move. They then took turns kicking, punching, stabbing, and spitting at him for what seemed like half a day. It took a while for Chad to die, but he didn't struggle. Instead, he, he harbored a knowing smile on his face. They buried his body later in the evening. Day 7. As soon as we turned on the screen, we instantly grew pale with shock. It looked like a massacre. Body parts were thrown around the entire town. Blood was smeared on almost every building and on the middle screen with the same smile on his face was Chad. He was mouthing a phrase over and over again. I'll be back for you. End journal. He vanished into thin air and before any of us could react, the room became pitch black. I don't know when I lost consciousness, but I woke up in my bedroom this morning. I eventually checked my bank account and saw that my payment for the experiment was deposited. Still unsure of how I made it back home, I checked my room for inconsistencies. Everything was exactly how I left it, except for a note on my mirror and a small bouquet of white roses at the edge of my bed. Don't worry. I'll give you a couple of days to run as far as away as you can. Love, Chad. The cold was the first thing I felt. Even before my eyes were open, I felt a very deep chill in my core. A thousand spindles of ice sewn between my tissues. I blinked, my eyelids slowly bringing and stealing back the darkness, and with it, the desire to keep them closed forever. I was lying face down on the floor, the tiles speckled with browned blood. I moved my arms to push myself up, but my muscles were stiff, almost too stiff to bend without breaking. I feebly pushed myself up, forcing weight upon deadened legs. I began to wonder why I felt the way I did. I wasn't sure how long I'd been laying there. There was the most peculiar feeling in my stomach, a sort of dissolution. Perhaps I had ingested something that knocked me out. Wait, where was I? I looked around the room I was in. It was a kitchen, mostly everything in order except for the few traces of a hurried exit. The back door was open, barely bolted to the top hinge. Cabinet doors were left open, 
and it seemed only the food readily edible was taken. A knife set was knocked over with a few blades missing. There was blood splattered on the floor in which I was laying. I could see a putrid stream of it running down my shirt, but after a quick search I couldn't find nor feel any wound. Each window I saw had the blinds drawn and the lights turned off as if the house's occupants were hiding. I went into the living room, barely bending my brittle knees into an awkward walk. It was dark, but I could see outlines of furniture well enough. There was nothing out of the ordinary except that the front door had been barricaded with a desk. There was a bedroom towards my right. The door closed, and then a hallway near the front door. The entire house was dark and empty. Except for me. Where was I? Whose house was this? And, and then... And then I realized I didn't know who I was. I thought and thought and thought upon it, trying to bring up some memory of a name, a friend, an activity, my face. I didn't even have a vague... I, I didn't even have an image of my own face. And the feeling of facelessness was eerily disconcerting. Trying to access my convoluted memory banks, I realized I couldn't remember anything other than the cold of waking up on that kitchen floor. I slowly became more and more sure that I'd been poisoned, or perhaps had an allergic reaction. It had to be some sort of chemical. What if I lived alone? I checked for a wallet in my pocket, but found none. I tried to call out, but something was wrong with my voice, as it, as it felt and sounded like my vocal cords were shredded. The only thing to come out was some sort of strangled noise mixed with a, mixed with a pathetic sputter. I spelled out a gob of blackish-red blood caught in my throat. I couldn't taste it, but it looked disgusting on whoever owned the couch in front of me. Since no one had responded to my vocalization, I decided to leave. Going through the front door, I pulled the heavy desk aside. It was difficult, not because of the weight, but because of my limbs. My arms felt encumbered by hundreds of pounds, and the rest of my body had been struck by some sort of torpor, like it was being pulled towards a supermassive black hole in the opposite direction I tried escaping to. Trying to grip the hulking piece of furniture was difficult as my fingers wouldn't cooperate, but the desk gave way easily, more easily than I thought it would. I'm not sure how long I spent trying to open the door. Time seemed different. I couldn't tell how long a moment was as I was completely grounded in the present. Trying to recall waking up in the kitchen was slowly becoming more difficult. After what could have been hours of failing, I orchestrated all of my fingers together into a twisting motion and opened the door. The difficulty of something seemingly simple perplexed me, but I lost interest and soon forgot about it. I have heard things that paralyzed, but were there some that caused memory loss as well? I knew of the Haitian zombies that forgot themselves entirely and served whatever voice they heard after they resurrected, but there was no voice to command me. My experience wasn't quite as dramatic, but someone's blood was in that kitchen. Maybe I survived an assassination. 
I'd been subdued on purpose, and I could still feel the results of my rigid muscles. But if amnesia was an intended side effect, what would someone stand to gain from it? I walked out the door into a suburban neighborhood, trying to figure this conundrum out. The sky was overcast and gray, a constant threat of some sort of foulness to rain from the heavens. The wind was strong, blowing various trash and debris down the street. I could see black smoke on the horizon rising up to the dark clouds. Step by step, I moved my desiccated feeling body down the driveway. I didn't see a single person, just the signs of exodus. Front doors were broken down or left open, windows smashed, burnouts from tires throughout the street, and the strange feeling of not being alone. I could sense someone was around. I could hear their heartbeat. I could feel their warmth. I needed to find them. I needed to know what was going on. Someone would help me, I was sure. A too thick saliva began to form in my mouth. A very foreign saliva. I spit a purple slime tinged with red hitting the ground, along with something white. The purging of a toxin. So I began to walk. I made horrible process walking down the street on a pair of dead legs. I didn't mind it though. I was lost in a sort of mindlessness, not uncontent to just be wandering. The whole time, the possibility of other people probed my brain, insisting I find them. Walking down a street through the external maze of a neighborhood, I came across a dog, a big Doberman. At first, he caught my attention in an interested way. I looked at him enthralled. But then he caught a glimpse of me and started barking. The barking became louder and louder and I began to grow irritated. The way the dog stared at me, I could see its fangs. I could feel the fury cauterizing my body, crawling up my spine, making my hands shake. This animal was challenging me, my prey. I strode over him, oblivious to the deep growling. The dog readied himself to pounce, and the thought of this pathetic thing posing a challenge was amusing. He jumped forward, biting into my calf hard, hard enough to cause a crunch to sound. But I was so full of rage, so full of hatred, that my whole body was numb. I threw myself upon the dog, wrapping my hands around his neck tightly. I slowly began twisting my iron grip with as much power as I could muster. And nothing in the world would stop me from breaking his neck. He managed to whimper in such a saddening manner that if I could feel sorrow, it would have hurt me inside. So I made it excruciating for the dog finally breaking his neck after his head was twisted 180 degrees. Then I picked his corpse up, slammed it, and started punching his ribcage grinding his flesh and innards against the cement with my fists until just the head and hind legs remain intact, connected together by spine and fur matted with the dog's bloody remains. When I was done, I asked myself what I had just done. I, I now felt nothing. I was calm. I was collected. My mind analyzed the situation and it deduced my anger as a fair reaction though I had a subconscious feeling that 
what I had just done was sickingly wrong. What if I had a damaged brain? I had heard a story of how a man had a brain damage in a specific area which caused him to fly into a blind fury at the smallest slight. What if it happened to me? Enough oxygen deprivation could cause both brain damage and unconsciousness. Was I even mentally fit to be a human anymore? I needed to find someone quickly. I continued on, eventually reaching the end of the neighborhood. Two cars were crashed into each other, and I walked up to them. One was empty while the driver of the other car was resting his head on the steering wheel. I walked over, opening the door and lifting his head up by the hair. His forehead was caved in, pieces of skull broken off of his brain. He didn't smell particularly good, so I picked him up and threw him into the street. I sat in the car looking at it. I was sure I'd driven cars many times before, but as I sat in that seat, I couldn't figure out what I was supposed to do. I grabbed the wheel, turned it, nothing happened. There were a ton of buttons next to the wheel, and I began pressing them. One of them made a terrible noise come on, and after forgetting which one it was, I left. I was on a main street. There were cars parked in the lots out front of a shopping center, the occasional sign of violence streaked upon the pavement or wall in a bloody fashion. The lights of miscellaneous shops were still on, though I could see no one inside. Automated traffic lights went through their cycles, unaware that they did nothing to serve the people who weren't there. The place was a ghost town, void of anything that might be alive. Then I saw someone. I was in front of a grocery store, the entrance destroyed by a flip car. The person I saw appeared to be a man. He limped, and it seemed like every time he put weight on his right leg, it would almost snap out underneath him. He was making his way into the apartment complex from the other side of the street. I tried yelling out to him, but all I could make was a groan. He continued on to the complex grounds, and I decided to follow him. When I passed the surrounding fence, however, I saw a group of people running up a flight of stairs into an apartment. One of them was holding a gun towards the man trying to follow, who seemed to beseech something of them by holding his arms out. From the look of it, he needed medical aid. And then they shot him. I immediately took cover behind the fence, peeking around the corner. The last person to go in was a woman who made the strangest feeling rise in my chest. I took a look at her as she stared at the corpse of the man her friend had just shot. She couldn't see me, however, and went inside. There was something odd about her. She contorted my chapped lips into a goofy grin. I had a feeling like I knew her, like I needed to know her again. Perhaps she could help me sort out this mess. Maybe I could find out who I once was but I wasn't going to be able to approach them if they were just shooting random people. I made my way towards the grocery store. My muscles began to grow flexible and I could move a bit more smoothly now. Though the calf the dog had bitten wasn't as strong as my uninjured one, I began to hope that whatever chemical was in my stream was starting to wear off and that there might not be permanent effects after all. I walked through the parking lot 
The place was abandoned, though it didn't seem voluntary. Some of the car doors were open, some were painted red. One trunk was open, half filled with groceries and a carton of eggs smashed upon the concrete next to it. Dozens of carts were left astray. The car that had rolled over had smashed the glass doors leading into the grocery store. It appeared the car was resting upon a few people, their blood and organs forced out of their bodies all over the cement. The wind blew. It was cold. I got to the dumpster behind the store and opened it. I grabbed a piece of cardboard and underneath was a small child, face gnawed until it was unrecognizable. I could see the bone of the nose, though the cartilage was gone. There was an ear spat out next to his head. The lips were eaten in a particularly vicious way, exposed and smashed in teeth and purple gums. The eyes had been slurped out, leaving this eight-year-old child staring into the sky with a lifeless gaze. The skull was smashed in and the brain was served at 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit. The body had pieces picked off of it in varying degrees in some places to the muscle and others to the bone. This was the work of something wild, something extremely mutilating. The child was small enough to be an easy meal for a pack of starving dogs. There was even a news report about Cases like this a few months ago, wasn't there? Or did it seem like something that would be on the news? Regardless, I reached my hand into the empty stomach, digging up the past remains in search of wet blood. After getting some, I wrote, I'm not an enemy. Don't attack on the cardboard. The body gave off a foul stench, and it wasn't the sight so much as it was the scent that deterred me. It wasn't decomposition, but there was something definitely wrong with the corpse. So I left, utterly forgetting the small child. I arrived back at the opening of the apartment complex. The door the group had entered was shut tight. I waited, not sure how long it was, but completely content with passing the time doing nothing. Then I thought it would be better to see them coming before they could see me. So I took my sign and went to the cemetery across the street from the apartments where I would be able to properly observe them. Night came. Everything was quiet. Not a single car passed. No one walked along the sidewalk. There wasn't a single person out picking up fast food, visiting the grocery store, or renting a movie. Orange glows on the horizon kept me company. Anything that a human being might once do was never to be done again. I lay there, silently watching, alone in a yard full of corpses. I had the same sensation I had in the neighborhood I woke up in, that there were people around. I knew I could feel the ones in that apartment, so I waited for them. The only uncomfortable part was the cold. I couldn't get warm at all. I wished my body would metabolize whatever was in me. I just wanted to feel all right again. I was slowly beginning to forget what exactly I needed metabolized from my body. Was it something bad? It couldn't be as I felt perfectly fine. I had the vague feeling that I should wait for the people who went into the house, that maybe the woman I saw could tell me what I needed out of my system. 
I spent the night next to the grave of Chris Redfield. Then day came. It seemed slow, but I couldn't be sure. My mind was only conjuring up blanks when I tried accessing the last few hours' images. The clouds stayed, hiding whatever might be bright, whatever was left that could be warm, if there was anything that could make me warm again. Finally, I saw them come out, a few, including the woman. I made as much haste as I could, holding up my sign until I caught one of their eyes. It was a man, thin, gaunt, bones quite prominent, like an undead skeleton. He had a handgun, and as soon as I came into his vision, he pulled it up, aiming it at me, yelling out a warning. The other two looked at me, and the woman I'd seen gasped. I got a better look at her. She was beautiful, even angelic, blonde hair of a very light color, green eyes, the color I imagine Mother Nature herself might have. I could see an aura around her of a bright white. I saw it shoot towards me, and I was instantly soothed. My leg felt all right. My spirit was healed. My, my being rejuvenated. I loved her, and I'm sure I loved her even more back before when I knew who I was. She looked at me with an expression stunned. The skeleton covered in flesh took a step forward, but she stood in front of him. I held out my sign, and she read it. I could see a tear run down her face. They muttered a conversation to each other, but the man let me continue on. Now how can you trust him? The man yelled as the woman I loved started walking towards me. We're going back right now, with or without you. And the other two started running back up the stairs. They meant nothing to me, however, so I didn't care. I dropped the sign. This woman, a complete stranger to me, yet so familiar, I felt that if I lost her now, I would lose my entire life. She came closer and stopped. Is that you? She whispered. Yes. I managed to articulate with difficulty. For this woman, I can remember nothing about this woman that I loved. I would do anything. She walked up to me. I extended my arms to embrace her, and when she fell into them, I ripped her throat out. The flesh in my mouth, one second and swallowed in the next. She started choking on blood, trying to scream and failing, falling to the concrete. She was mute, the same way I was. I got down to my knees, making a fist and smashing through her ribcage to get the best-tasting organs. I broke the skin, broke bones, gripped her heart, ripped it out, and started savoring it. I had no idea why I was doing this, as I was now a mere victim of my instincts. This drive took over my hands and jaws. This inherent rage encoded within my existence. I now knew the purpose of my existence. The only thing I loved right now was the way her flesh tasted. The first thing I had been able to taste in so long. It had the perfect texture, the right amount of chewiness, and the blood was a perfect complement. I felt an elation. I felt an amazing high. I'd 
I had never known as I consumed her carcass. I felt a tooth get stuck in a particularly calloused piece of hand, but swallowed it anyway. I would regret this later, if I could still regret. If I could still regret, I might regret that after I had my fill, this woman would get up, only to suffer the same bewilderment and estrangement from reality as I had. I might regret that I was purposely going to let her reanimate so she could do infect others. I might regret the deaths of the others she would eat. I might regret letting the corpses of children be thrown into dumpsters after her victims did the part to spread this disease. If I could still regret, if I even cared to regret, I might regret succumbing to the results of my twist of fate. I am now the plague bearer. I am now the one I used to despise in horror movies. I am the downfall of my former race. I am the apocalypse. And then I began to feast. I walked down the stairs of the safe house. I volunteered to collect supplies. Ash and Leon accompanied me. We made it down the stairs and walked over to the car. All of a sudden I heard a yell from Ash and turned. He was holding his gun up towards one of the dead. It wasn't just one of the dead. It was my husband. The tumultuous storm of negative emotions I'd experienced these last two days had just ended. Ever since the genetic switch within humanity's junk DNA was pulled magnetically, there was no place more like hell than home. Each one of us were now another's apocalypse. One by one, countries fell. The northern hemisphere was hit, then America, then our state. It was one swift sweep, like God waving his hand across the world to clean up a mess he had let grow too big. I knew it was the end. The beginning of that end started when one of the undead broke into our home and bit my husband in the back of the neck. Life became meaningless. Until this moment, now he was back, back from the dead. Not completely, but close enough. My reason to stay alive was resurrected in the form of his corpse in front of me. I could see past the glaze in his eyes that he could remember me, that he had been searching for me. He stared at me the way he used to stare before he would tell me he loved me. Ash stepped forward and I quickly stepped in front of him. I read the sign my husband had made painted in some sort of red which said I-M-N-E-M-E D-O-E-T-A-T-A-K his spelling was never very good anyways, but this meant that he was still functioning. And even though he was a shambling corpse with a shin bone piercing through his calf, I still loved him. I tried to stop myself from crying. What are you doing? Ash asked. That's my husband, I told him. That's not your husband, he's a corpse, a zombie hungering for your flesh. He probably walked in from the same cemetery as the other cadaver. I'm going to talk to him. No, how can you trust him? But I had already started walking towards my husband. We're going back now, with or without you. I heard Ash yell, and then their footsteps up the stairs. I didn't need them, though. The only person I needed was him. The man in front of me, the one with the dilated, newly pigmented pupils that were as ghostly as the moon. 
He was missing one of his front teeth, but with the bloody and rotting gums he had developed, it seemed like they'd fall out soon anyhow. He was covered in dried blood and smelled of decomposition. But death was the final barrier, and he had broken it. Now we could be together forever. I stopped in front of him. Is that you? I asked. Yes, he rasped, like his vocal cords had been cut out with a scalpel, and then sewn back in by a high school special ed student with a cleft hand. I walked up. He opened his arms, and he embraced me. The cold was the first thing I felt. Such an overwhelming cold. I opened my eyes with difficulty. Lamps lit the area I was in with an orange glow, creating an eerie, otherworldly sensation as if I were in some reality that never existed until this moment. With as much strength as I could muster, I tried moving. My muscles were stiff, and bending them was almost impossible. I finally got up, though. I took a look around. I was in a parking lot of what looked like an apartment complex. Where was this? Where was I? Wait a second. Who was I? I began to try and recall something, anything from my memory. Nothing came up. I tried calling out, but the only noise I made was a strange gurgling, as if my throat were full of liquid. Then I looked down. There was a corpse next to me, laying face up. I had the strangest feeling that this man was important, that I hadn't, that I hadn't known him. He was missing a tooth covered in blood, and obviously killed by a bullet to the head. He gave me a very peculiar feeling, and anyone who could feel sorrow would have been saddened by this man's condition. So I started walking away. I had an instinctive feeling that there were people nearby, though, though where I wasn't sure. But I needed to find people. They would help me. I was sure.